Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, David. It's fantastic to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm fine and glad to be here. Looking forward to this. Very good. So it's been a long time since I've wanted to speak to you, but I do know about your program at Stanford for quite a long time because we've had many previous clients who were graduates of the Stanford Graduate School of Business who've attended your teaching and that of your colleague Carol when she was still at Stanford. And they always tell me, Michael, you know, some of the things you teach are very similar to what David Bradford was teaching. So maybe a good place to start is what were you teaching at Stanford and what makes this course so unique? Yes, the formal name is interpersonal dynamics, but the students always call it touchy-feely. And the emphasis is on the feely, which I'll get to later. Yeah. What's unique about this course is its structure, or rather its lack of structure. So uh, the purpose of the course is to increase students' competence in building more open, authentic relationships. And the way we do it is there are 36 students in each section, okay. broken into 12-person groups, and they spend 10 weeks looking at their interaction and getting feedback from each other. So we make minimum use of cases. Yes, we have some lectures between meetings of the groups, but the real learning is in the group. And there students take the risk of sharing their reactions, showing more of themselves, and being more authentic. And in the process, they acquire skills and how to do that and how to build relationships. And they get personally validated because other people say, you know, now that I really know you, you're much more interesting. I'm more likely to follow you. I'm more likely to be influenced by you. But when you try to put on a image, it, it didn't work for me. So you've been running this course for how many years? We have been running the course. Uh, I came to Stanford in 1969. Wow. A, a modified version had been done three years previous, but it really developed uh, in 69. Okay, so let's think about this. You've been teaching the course a very long time. What do you see as being the big shifts and changes in the way we've been training leaders? What has changed? I think the big shift has been in the students we have, but also in their realization of the importance of this course. So let me start with the first. When I first came there, we were almost all from North America. Yeah. They were almost all male. There was only four females out of a class of maybe 320. Since then, we've become very international. 20% of our students are from overseas. Almost 40% are now women. We don't have as many people of color as we'd want. We have a lot of internationals who were born here. So it's a very diverse group. And that, that's wonderful. That, that's really great. What has been the change in the requirements in business in terms of how we teach leaders? Well, it used to be that we would teach that leaders had the answer. Yes. And I think more and more, and I was also the one that helped develop the leadership program, more and more were defined as your job is to release the potential in the organization. 
because our students hire competent employees. Yeah. So why not really use that? So that's been a big change. The other change is in 69, there wasn't much emphasis on emotions, on feelings. Yes, it was hidden, right? You were trained to bury it. That's right. You trained, we trained logic. We trained facts. And I think that the work on emotional intelligence has really legitimized that it's, quote, the soft skills. It's the interpersonal skills. It's being in touch with your emotions and your feelings and using them appropriately that really counts. Yeah. So what you're saying is that the requirements of executives, leaders, managers has changed. Yes. We moved away from a leader being an all-knowing, all-seeing being who has all the answers and tells people what to do to being a facilitator of talented team members. Is that a good way to paraphrase it? Yes, but I would add more strength to it. It's that a leader is a facilitator, but also demands it a different way. It used to be that the leader would demand, you do what I tell you to do. I think leaders today demand, I want you to operate at a high level of capability, mm-hmm. and I'm going to help you do that. So it does have a requirement to it. The leader just doesn't go along with the people, but he has also the high standards that he or she sets. Okay, that makes sense. So the leader is skilled, but he holds the team to a high standard, facilitate, and to some degree coaches them to meet that high standard? That's right. And demands. demands and demands, that, yes. That's an important and, point. And demands that you do as well as you can do. And I'm going to hold you to that, and I'm going to help you. Yeah, I think this is an important point, and I want to break it down for the audience because I want them to understand this. It's one thing to have team members who are highly skilled. It's another thing whether they constantly operate at the highest level, which is called having have, which is what we mean when we say having high standards, right? And then linked to that, you can have a skilled team member who, and whereby you, you list these high standards, but you have to demand that they operate at this level and empower them to do so. Is that a good way to summarize it? I think that is. And also, it's not just that I demand that you individually perform high, yes, but that you collaboratively work high because the people working together are superior to all the individuals working alone. Organizations are much more collaborative than they ever have been before. So what has driven this shift from leaders knowing everything to leaders playing this role of empowering and getting the best out of their teams. What has driven this? I think it's two things. One is international competition oh, I'm has, glad you said that. has increased the quality, the demands. Mm-hmm. You know, let's take the automobile industry. It used to be in the U.S. if the car had enough fins that would sell. Yeah, I remember when I first bought a car, Yeah, you would always take it back to the dealer six or seven times to fix it. People don't tolerate that anymore. They want high quality because they could get it elsewhere. And that's what happened with American automobiles. Japan really forced us to increase our quality. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is work itself has become incredibly complex. Yes. I remember talking to one CEO in Silicon Valley, and he said, I don't fully understand my product. It's too complicated. Yes. I have to rely on the team to understand the product. So if it's that complex, you just can't expect the leader to know everything. It's, it's an onerous task. 
That makes a lot of sense. Let's work with both of these concepts separately because I think they're very important. I'm going to phrase this deliberately in a bit of a controversial way just to make a point because I want to unpack it, okay? Okay. Is it fair to some degree that leaders are embracing all these concepts of, as you call it, touchy-feely and so on, not because they really care about employees, but because they have to do this to keep up with competitors. They have no choice. I would agree. And those who don't. So let me tell a story if I can. Yes, so I was consulted to a company in the Silicon Valley. It was led by an Israeli general. Mm -hmm. And he thought he had all the answers. And he drove the company uh, into bankruptcy. Yes. And his direct reports complained. You know, you don't listen to us. We can't disagree with you. And he said, I'm the one that knows. That, that's sad. But that's the old way. And what happened after that? The company folded. And what happened to the, to the leader, the general? Did he learn his lesson? No. 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 So this is it's interesting, just... right? Because what we're seeing here is that, I'm going to take an American-centric viewpoint just because you know, we're both in the United States, but it's almost as if American companies have tried deploying various tools and weapons, if you want to call it in inverted commas, to take on foreign competition. But it seems that now they're realizing one of the greatest tools they have is how can they get their teams to work more collaboratively to the highest standards with the right leaders in place? Is that a good way of thinking about it? Yes, I would agree with that. If more and more leaders internationally realize that, we would have less waste, less failure, less frustration. Because the trouble with the heroic leader who thinks they have to have all the answers is it's terribly frustrating to those below. Because those below have knowledge, competence that's not being used. Yes. It's not as if this is, you know, 1920, when we built organizational structures with the purpose of constraining humans and keeping them out of the way while we built these widgets, right? We work in a world whereby you have no choice but to bring out the best in your employees because you're paying them so much, you want the highest return. And it's all about productivity. Yes. I think we don't realize how much waste, human waste, there is in organization. I remember, this was about 10 years ago, I heard one CEO in a high-tech company, and I asked him, I said, what percentage of your employees' ability do you think is being used? And he said, only 15%. Wow. And he said, we're trying to use more. Well, think if you had a piece of machinery that you were only using 15% of its potential. Yes, that's the sad waste. Before I get to the second point on complex products, you raise a very important question that I think all leaders are grappling with. If you build an organization where you have such smart employees, where you're empowering them to make decisions in real time, doesn't that require a much more confident leader and a much more flatter organizational structure? Yes, you certainly often don't need all of the levels, but you'll never get away from the hierarchy. Sure. What you want to do is you want to have as few levels and you want to have the psychological gap between each level be as narrow as possible. Explain psychological gap. That's a term I've not heard very often. The notion of, we refer to it as the power gap between a person who's a manager and an employee. And there could be a quite a large gap where the leader says, when I say jump, uh, you're supposed to say how high, that's all you're supposed to say. Yes. You're not supposed to question me. You're not supposed to initiate. And then you have relatively narrow gaps. And when you have narrow gaps, better things happen. 
we, there's a lot of research to support this in one of our books, we summarized it, that when there's a large power gap, the leader doesn't listen to the person below, yes. doesn't value them. Mm -hmm. And the person below being ignored withdraws or sabotages, which just reinforces the leader's belief, I can't trust you. When there's a narrow power gap, you're going to have more disagreement, but it's going to be productive disagreement where the person below is going to say, because I'm committed to you and the organization, I think this is wrong. And I want to tell you that because we're in this together. It's a sense of being in it together that you really want to build. Yes, that makes sense. So switching gears to the complexity of products, it seems like products we were making in 1970 were fairly complex as well. I mean, we were building cars in America. Those were not easy to make. So when you say product complexity, what is a bit more complex about our products or services that requires this change in the way we manage employees? Well, let's go back 40 years, 50 years, the automobile industry, and where they too often went by the hierarchy. So engineering would develop something and throw it over the wall to production. Yes. Production would try to build it and throw it over the wall to marketing. And marketing would try and advertise it and throw it over the wall to sales. And what they learned relatively quickly, that didn't work because sales had information about what the customer wanted. And production could give some suggestions that if you engineered it in a different way. So now you have more cross-functional team development. So that's an example of something, a car, which is, you know, a car has more uh, computer bits than anything else, has to use the various knowledge that is in the organization. So before you continue, David, I want to ask you a question. You said that R&D threw it to design, design threw it to manufacturing, they threw it to marketing, and they found it didn't work. So it worked up till a certain point. Why did it stop working? What have you seen are the reasons that it stopped working? We've been talking about cars, but this could apply to almost any product. Sure. When I was first driving, I didn't have many choices. They were all American cars. Yes. They were all as uh, deficient as the next one. Yes. As I said, I'd often have to take it back to the dealer to repair it four or five times. Yes. I didn't have much choice. Then I bought uh, my first international car. What did you get? Well, I got a Volvo station wagon because we had children then. Yeah, okay. And boy, it worked really well and I didn't have to take it back. And I think I bought uh, Toyotas ever since because it is so complex and so high quality that I won't tolerate a bad car anymore. Mm -hmm. I have choices. Yes. And the international market gives me those choices on a whole variety of products. Okay, that's interesting because again, it, we circle back to this point that competition has become so intense over time. And we started seeing this in the 60s and 70s when the Germans started coming, when the Japanese started coming. But it seems to me that because of intense competition, we're finding new ways to get the best out of employees, right? Yes. Okay. So now whenever I read about many books and courses from you know, Stanford, all the good schools about how to get the best out of employees on touchy-feely subjects, they treat it as, as almost as if it's something that's nice to do as opposed to you have to do it to compete and there's a clear business case to it. Why has the profession stayed away from sort of the numbers and the productivity argument? Because I don't see much of that when we talk about these subjects. Yes, and that's sad. And I think part of it comes back to a conceptual dilemma that too often 
courses like I helped develop and other yeah. courses like it say we ought to do it because it increases morale. We yes. ought to do it because it's a nice thing to do. And the trouble is we then focus on being nice to people. Well, I want to be nice to people, but we really should stress you want to do this because if you have empowered and high initiative employees, yes. you'll perform better. And unfortunately, we tend to emphasize the good morale uh, aspects and not as much the um, productivity. But I think there is evidence, and I've seen some of the evidence, that productivity goes up, uh, turnover goes down, uh, quality goes up when you tap into it. Because workers want to be productive. Yes. I mean, uh, they do not want to slough off. Yeah, but everyone wants to be rewarded and earn their way in the world and feel respected. Yes, and, and there's some interesting research about this. When you ask employees in their prime, say from where they start off and up until uh, they get close to retirement, what is it you most value from a job? What's interesting is number one is good coworkers. Yeah. And if you've ever worked at a place, and I have, where the culture is poisonous, yeah. it is truly a horrible place to work. That's number one. Number two is an exciting job where I could learn, which demands me. Yes. Uh, no, no, it's an exciting job. Number three is a chance to learn. And a four is having autonomy, having freedom. And number five is salary. And we tend to think that with workers, salary is one. First, it's not first, it's fifth. Yes. I feel so optimistic about the future. It yes. used to be when you think about work, work was in many ways horrible. If you were working yes. in a steel plant, if you were laying railroad tracks, it was onerous, it was backbreaking, it was dangerous. Work now is complex, is exciting. My son is a senior engineer at Microsoft, and, and what he's excited about is the new challenge that comes in. So now it turns out that what workers really want is what the organization needs. And now we could have not management versus workers, but we really have the potential of collaboration if leaders realize that. And I think the problem is more leadership than anything else. Yes, well said. I remember when I used to be a strategy partner and I used to work in the resources sector, we worked for a mining company and we found that they consistently mm. had a lower labor cost than any of their competitors across any of their facilities worldwide, but they had a higher total factor productivity. So the amount of earnings they were generating per employee was always consistently higher. And when you spoke to the employees about, you know, why were they able to work so well and produce so much, even though they were being paid less than other employees, other competitor labor force, what we found is that they liked working for this company because it treated them well. It gave them challenging roles. It treated them like adults and they were willing to take a lower salary to be part of that organization. So one of the things we forget is that if you treat employees well, you can actually lower your labor costs, right? Right. You cut down on turnover, which is terribly expensive. You know, I think we need to reconceptualize. When we say, what do you pay them? We think of money or benefits. Yes. We ought to say, do you pay them in challenging jobs? Do you yes. pay them in autonomy? Do you pay them in training and further increasing their competence? 
those all should be seen as payments. Yes. We should also think of them in terms of the, the lifetime value of the employees, not just the cost, it's the value they create, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all about having these skills you talk about and being able to bring it to the labor force. So, you know, I know you wrote this book with uh, Carol called Connect. I mean, you, could, you should change the name of the book to You Must Do This or Your Company Will Die, I think. <laughs> That'll be a much okay. more catchy phrase for your course at Stanford and your book. David. <laughs> so sticking with this idea of productivity and so on, right? So you've been teaching this course to, I'm guessing, students at the graduate level, but also executives as well, with about 20, 30 years experience. Correct. Now, in terms of having this very unique view of how executives think in China and Saudi Arabia and you know, all over the world, do you think that there are some parts of the world that are more amenable to using these principles and are, are better at applying them? In other words, you know, are there some good examples where people and companies are applying these principles? I think one of the major barriers is the attitude of what a leader should do. And in traditional countries, the leader has the answer. Yes. So we find, for example, that when executives come from very, very traditional uh, countries. And I'm thinking of one of our programs from Africa, yeah. where the leader was the tribal leader and was uh, also the religious leader. Oh, wow. And it was virtually impossible for that person to start to listen to those below because it was so antithetical to what the culture was. Yes. Now, I think the world is changing very, very fast. Europe used to be quite conservative. It's much less so now. I've done uh, work in Israel, and they're uh, learning how to uh, listen below, partially because those below won't keep quiet. (laughs) Uh, I've been struck when I've talked to our Indian students. They're saying, yes, things are changing there. So I I want to tell another story. I was uh, leading a student group to China. We were looking at entrepreneurial companies. Yes. And as part of it, we visited some of the state companies, state-run. And the state-run, I'll never forget, the CEO came in in a dark suit, Yeah. followed by his assistants in a dark suit. Only he talked when he talked to our students. Yes. And then we went to the computer companies in China. And the CEO came in in jeans. And I said to the students, we could be in Silicon Valley. So there is a traditional country driven by Confucius thinking that in certain industries, they are realizing it and doing very, very well. So in other words, we can't stereotype a country. It's more, it depends on the sector. It depends on the region where these principles can be easily applied, right? Yes. And I think it's also due to education. I think the more educated people are, the less willing they are to just stand by and take orders. Yes, and I think if you can always tie the business case side, to, you know, we're doing this to be more successful, more people are willing to experiment and try out the principles. Yes, but I want to add, it's very hard for leaders who hold this heroic mindset to admit they made a mistake, yeah. to ask for help, to say, I'm not sure I know how to do it. So if I could tell a quick story, we had an executive come to one of the programs. He, we had him speak, and uh, he was uh, hired to take over a company that he knew was troubled. And after he accepted it, he looked at the books more thoroughly and saw mm-hmm. they weren't just troubled. They were about to go under. 
He had just taken the job. He pulled his staff together and he said, I do not have the answer, but maybe we can have the answer. And what he found was so exciting. The uh, person in purchasing said, well, I think we can put off paying some of these uh, people, some of our suppliers for a while. And the person in sales said, I think I could get some advanced payment. And they were going all the way around all of them adding on their knowledge and they were able to save the company. But the leader couldn't have done it alone. Yes. And fortunately, this leader felt proud about his not knowing. Very few leaders feel proud when they don't know. So, I mean, this is an important point. It's about the identity and the confidence of a leader. Is the identity of the leader one as a leader who must always give the answers or the identity one whereby the leader helps employees and the organization be their best selves? And does the leader have the confidence to allow that to, to play out, right? Yes. And it must be very difficult. You know, we, we can sit here and say it's very obvious, but if you're 50, 60, or you, you know, in a traditional culture, it's sometimes very difficult to let go of the way you think is best to do things. Right. Because if you're brought up in a certain way, your network of peers that you look up to and your mentors tell you you need to know everything. How do you as a leader let go of that and embark on this new way of developing employees? What has worked and what hasn't worked? Well, I think that leaders, they may go to Stanford and executive programs and so on. Sure. But I think leaders learn more from other leaders. So okay. my guess is that the programs we run, it's during the meals, it's in the evening over a beer, yeah. where they talk with each other, that they really learn. So I think that leaders who are struggling, who in a sense uh, complain about their employees as not taking initiative, as yes. not working as hard, can they search out? You gave the example working in the mine. Yeah. The question I would have, did other mine managers come to your mine to find out what was going on? I would hope so, but I doubt it. Yes. So can you find people who are trying things in different ways? Now, fortunately, there's enough uh, articles coming out. Yeah. There's enough stories coming out. And, and I think also leaders are willing to admit they don't know as much in front of other leaders than they are in front of their direct reports. And once they can do that, then they can go back and do it with their direct reports. Yes. It's also the fact that they feel as if they're not a failure if other leaders have been through this. They feel that it's pretty normal. Someone else has suffered at this. I shouldn't feel bad about it, right? Well, I've had several managers who said, I've never failed. I've only had learning experiences. And if we could see failures yes. as an opportunity to learn. I mean, think of scientists, think of engineers. Mm -hmm. They fail all the time. Exactly. But they learn from their failures. And do we learn? And I think many managers don't. It's also the, the questions we asked ourselves. I mean, if we're going back to something you said a few minutes ago, you said that some leaders will say, my employees are not doing a good job. My employees are not productive. My employees are not entrepreneurial. But that's the wrong question to ask. A good leader should ask, why are my employees not entrepreneurial? What is wrong about the yes. environment we have that doesn't allow them to be entrepreneurial, right? Yes, absolutely. This has happened to me more than once where I have uh, worked in an organization, consulted to an organization, and it turned out that the leader had to take out a new assignment, would be away for six months or so on, and turned to the team and said, you somehow got to struggle through. 
And they actually did better. And not only that, they were worried about when the leader would return because their uh, initiative, their freedom might be taken away. Yes. And I would guess that when the leader came back, he or she imposed control again. Yeah. And got in their own way. And what I've seen, you know, working with executives across many industries, I've seen executives try this to empower their teams to be more creative and make decisions on their own. But they all fall, not all, but many of them fall into a very common trap. What they don't realize is because their team has never been given this latitude before, initially they're going to do a little bit worse. And the last thing you want to do as a leader is jump in and try to control it when they do a little bit worse. You got to let them go through that sort of a dip in performance and come out on the other side or they're never going to get the confidence and learn the tools to manage things by themselves. When you're rolling this out, you've got to expect it's going to be bumpy at first. Have you seen that with your work? Yes, I've seen it. And I think that there's also an intermediate step. There's research on different decision-making styles. Uh, one is the leader makes a decision autonomously by him or herself. Yeah. The other extreme is to delegate. But there are two levels between that, which is much more collaborative. And if you can, as an intermediate step, have more of a collaborative decision where the leader in essence says, our job is now to make the decision. We're going to make the decision, which is different than you're advising me. That's a second stage. First yeah. is autonomous, second is advising. But the third is we're collaboratively going to do this. If they move to that sort of collaboration yeah. and let go of giving the answer, Yes. Then you may not have that downside when there's more and more delegation. Yes. It's actually quite difficult to do because another way, you know, when we say some leaders tell employees what to do, yes. that's another way of saying leaders have the answers. That's how they can tell employees what to do, right? So they have to create a whole new management process to be collaborative. And what I would think is, and what I've seen is that most leaders who want to implement this way of thinking, they come unstuck because they don't have the necessary tools in terms of how they engage their employees, how they run meetings to create a collaborative process, because they are familiar with tools that have a command and control approach attached to them. Have you seen the same thing? Yes, yes, all the time. And it's a different set of skills. Often yeah. it's asking questions. It's saying, what do you think is a problem? What do you think is a real problem? What do you think are the causes? What are the alternatives? And leaders so quickly want to jump in and say, this is a problem, yeah. this is a cause, and here's how to solve it. And yeah. in doing so, they're using their confidence, yeah. but they're emasculating their direct reports and not using their confidence. Yes, it's about when you first start this process, right? When you first start the process, it's how do you get employees comfortable knowing that they're not going to be cut off at the knees if they start speaking, because that's what's happened to them before, right? Right. So you almost got to create some way to break the ice and show employees, look, it's a, there's a new way of things taking place. And I want you to be comfortable to speak. And how do you think leaders should do this? Those who want to start applying this principle. So imagine they come in on a Monday morning ATM, they have the first meeting with their line of direct reports, and they want to start being collaborative. What can they do? Well, that's an that's a excellent question and an incredibly complicated question. And, and I wish I had three answers that would solve it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have <laughs> some ideas. <laughs> I have some ideas. I think the first step is a joint diagnosis of what's going on. Yes. And if the leader really wants to do it, 
See, what I've been implying with some of my previous comments is in some cases, many cases, the leader is the problem, yeah. although the leader blames yeah. the direct report. So if the leader really wants to build a more open culture, maybe that person needs to get some information, to get some feedback. Yeah. So one of the ways to do it would be to start to ask, and there are different ways to do this, what am I doing that is helpful? And what am I doing that is less than fully helpful? The leader could also say, here's where I'd like to go, but I've got some concerns. Will you come through? Will you try and cover for each other? And how are you going to speak to my concerns? So again, it's throwing the problem back to the direct reports to say, what do I need to do? What do we need to do? What are you going to do to speak to my concerns? And that by its very nature signals, I don't have the answer. We have the answer. Now that doesn't mean that the leader has to accept all the ideas. Yes. But the leader could say, I have trouble with that. This is what I'm worried about. Can you speak to my worry and, and resolve it for me and not immediately jump in? But the tendency is to hold onto the reins so tightly that it's hard for leaders to do this. So it's almost as if it's a process of giving the accountability for the problem to the whole team to define the yes. problem, as opposed to the leader setting up the framework for the problem and the boundaries and saying, you fix this. This is not a one day, one week, one month process. Yes. But, but it can move relatively quickly if the leader is committed. It's also often helpful to have a coach uh, or a consultant to the team. Yeah. Because as you say, the direct reports are, have, they've been conned before. They've had previous leaders who say, oh, I want you to be open. Uh, and then they get killed. The messenger gets killed for the message. Oh, I want to collaborate but I'm going to tell you what to do. So employees are gun shy and they're going to need to be confronted about why are you holding back? Yes. Why, why don't you try something new? Yeah, because I remember I used to be a strategy partner for a very long time, but for one particular engagement, the um, CEO asked me to manage the implementation of the recommendations, which, you know, as you know, is very different from coming up with the strategy, right? And the one thing I noticed is that when I used to go and speak to the senior executives, I would tell them something and it was very rational, <laughs> but I had, to tell, I had to go back and see them at least seven times to tell them the same thing until they trusted me. It's a trust issue. It's not about whether what I'm saying makes sense because they are very afraid to follow my recommendation because they don't know if the CEO has agreed to this and they don't know what will happen to their career if they go ahead with it. So you know, we always talk about rational thinking, but a lot of times it's just a function of trust. And in this example, does the subordinates of the leader trust the leader not to punish them if they speak up, right? I think that's important. And one of the things we know is trust is strengthened when it is broken and then corrected. That's what's interesting. Let's say that you, with your team, want to build a much more collaborative culture. Yes. And you say, when you think I make a mistake, I want you to call me on it. And two days later, the direct report says something to you and you snap at that person. Yeah. And the team goes quiet. Hopefully you realize what you've done. Could you then say, I'm sorry for what I did. I made a mistake. I contradicted myself. I'm human. I make mistakes. 
I will try not to do it again, but I, I might, and I need you to call me on it. That is the sort of behavior that goes beyond the initial statement of, well, let's just be collaborative because mm -hmm. words are cheap. It's yes. this action of admitting that I made a mistake that can build a trust. There's a deeper insight here, building on what you've you know, so well explained, David, is that we want team members to make mistakes, which creates moments to develop trust, right? And to learn from. So could the leader say, here's a hot button for me. Here's where I tend to stop uh, thinking and just act. Yes. I need to look at that. And I need you to help me. You see, if leaders could say, I want to help you, I want you to help each other, and I want you to help me, that's the sort of learning environment that today's organizations need. And coming back to the course, people learn how to ask for help and how to give help in a way that really is useful. It's a real skill to ask for help and to give help. It's not easy. Yes, because it's not just about that conversation, because you can be, you can learn all the right things to say in a conversation in one hour. But if you don't live that value system, when you leave that room, you'll lose the trust anyway, right? That's right. Unless somebody confronts you. And you can and course correct. And correct it. So I think this is important for the listeners. It's not about knowing what to ask. You must be that person who wants to be truly collaborative. Otherwise, your actions at some point will contradict what you are saying. And unless you can be called out and, and genuinely change, eventually your accumulated actions will show people you are not sincere about this. That's correct. Okay, now I'm going to change gears a little bit, right? I think we can all agree we live in a world where today a lot of companies, I think maybe the majority of companies, seem to be very attuned to diversity, inclusion, caring about employees, and so on. So it's maybe an unfair question, David, but I'm going to ask your views on it anyway. Do you think enough companies are doing it because it's the right thing to say and do? Or do they really understand this can give them a serious competitive advantage in the market? How many companies are doing it because they have to do it or they really understand the business case and productivity benefits of applying these principles? I think uh, not enough. Uh, I don't have any figures. Sure. But at least I'm glad they're doing it, whatever the reason, because yes. I think that if they do it, they will start to see the benefits. Now, we don't know what is causal because the correlation... Sure. But the correlation is that the more women there are on the board of directors, the higher the performance of the organization. Now, again, we don't know what is causal, yeah. but I think that's a very interesting correlation. And you see, part of why it's better if the leaders do it for the right reason is then you will use the diversity. You just won't have people of color. You just won't have different sexual orientation. Sure. You'll have them because you say, we need different viewpoints, and you bring a different viewpoint. And therefore, that person is valued not just for their demographic characteristic, but for what they really bring. Yes. And, and that is what it will lead to much higher performance. And the great thing about all of this is that, you know, over time, companies that are more diverse and practice these values, they should be doing better if they're doing it right, and the benefit and the evidence will be there, right? If the end goal of all of this is to make companies more competitive and more productive in time, we will see that and the benefits will speak for themselves. If it is used. Yes, because many companies are not doing it correctly. They sometimes pay lip service to this. Yes. So I think the evidence is that diversity helps 
but it really helps when the leader values the diversity and utilizes it. So okay. in some ways, yes. it's a two-step process. Can we bring in diversity? And then could we know how to use it? This is important. I want you to unpack this because I think that for too often, diversity is seen as the goal in itself. As you see, I want to define diversity very broadly. Yes. Yes, it's gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, geographic, cultural background. Mindset, thinking, and so on. Yes. That's an important part of diversity. So there's a diversity in how we solve problems. Yes. So let me give an example. I'm going to go back to the book Carol and I wrote. Carol and I have a very different style. I tend to be uh, much more of a divergent thinker yeah. coming up with new ideas. Carol is more convergent. She sort of says, well, come on, we need to make a decision. Yes. Each of us realized we needed the other person because yeah. I could come up with new ideas until the cows came home. The book would never be out. And if Carol was dominant, the book would not be of the quality it is. Yes. So we valued our differences and were able to utilize it. And does the leader value that? Or does the leader only hire people who are like him or her? And then you narrow that diversity. Yes. I want to make this point very clear because I think it's an important point, David, and you gave a great example there. It's one thing to say you want diversity in thinking and you hire someone very different in thinking. But then you also have to create a system, a process to draw in their ideas, right? It's not enough just to hire someone and then say the job is done. You've got to create the process to use that diversity. I think that's true. But what I keep on coming back to, and, and this is why I think the course that we teach is so important. Yes. It's we can't put all the responsibility on the leader to do exactly the right thing. Sure. So that's a new model. That's a new heroic image of a, of a leader. Yes. What I want to do is I want to build a system yes. where people could speak up when they see that something is lacking. Now, the leader is crucial in building that system. But I think leadership is in many ways a systems builder. They're building a system of the appropriate culture, the appropriate norms, the yes. appropriate behaviors the appropriate expectations. And if you had a system in which when things are going south, going wrong, somebody will speak up and it doesn't depend on the leader to catch it every time. Yes. But I think we're saying the same thing because what I'm saying is the role of the leader to build a system that's inclusive and allows that diverse viewpoint to be heard. But it's not necessarily the role of the leader to be actively involved in that unit or cell of the company where that diverse thinking exists. He's got to have a system. He's got to have the right culture in place. Yeah, that's true. And I want part of that culture to be that when the person of a certain diversity doesn't feel heard, he or she could speak up and say, wait a minute, you talk about diversity. Yes. I've just been cut off three times. You know, what's going on here? I like that. So it's about creating the right environment. And it, the leader sets the pace, but it's, it's you know, all parts of the organization need to play their role. And then also you make a very good point. It's the role of the participants to also speak up when they feel that they're not being heard, right? Because everyone yes. has to play their role. And in order to play it, they have to have a set of skills that many people don't have. Which is what they, is taught in your course, basically. That's right. They have to have the skills of how could I disagree without being abrasive? Yes. How could I give feedback without attacking? 
how can I share that I'm my feelings without being put down for it or feeling put down? Yes. Uh, these are complex skills. They never used to be required in organizations. And now they're required, not just by the leader, but by members as well. Yes. And I think that's why research on emotional intelligence shows uh, that's highly predictive of success. When you talk about skills, we tend to take for granted how important those skills. I remember one example I have, right? I was in a restaurant recently. I was talking to someone in the restaurant and they wanted to know what the food is like. And I said, well, I've sent back the food about seven times in this restaurant. But then the manager comes up to speak to me, all the waiters come up to speak to me. And this guy asked me, how is it you have such good relationships with the managers and the waiters if you sent back the food seven times? And when I explained to him, it's the way I send back the food. If I don't like the food, I never complain. What I do is I call the waiter over and I say, okay, I'm sure this is a fantastic dish. What would happen if I don't like the dish? And then I wait for the waiter to tell me what to do. If he says you can't change it, I won't change it. If he says, don't worry, Michael, I'm going to take it back. We'll fix it. I'll say, okay, take it back. But what people don't understand, that's a very simple example of showing that it's the skill that I use when I talk to them that allows me to keep a good relationship with them, right? I think that's true. And I think different people would approach that problem differently. But I think what is very important is you were paying attention to your own needs and you were also paying attention to the waiters or waitresses' needs. Mm, yes. And probably with some waiters and waitresses, you could have been a little more direct and you sure. might not have said, this is wonderful because yeah. it really wasn't because it was too cold and so on. So you take account of yourself and the other. And if we did that more, we could send more food back and get better fed. Exactly. And, you know, you can go back to the restaurant because you're not worried they're going to do something to your food, right? You were very nice to them and you were very direct and polite and so on. Is there anything else you want to add on the subject for our audience? Yeah, there's one final thing, which when I sort of think of all that we cover, what is the most important? I think what's important is that all of us realize that we always have choices. And one of the things that we do when students say, oh, I can't do that, or a yeah. client says, oh, I can't tell my boss that, we say, you're choosing not to do that. Yes. When we say I can't, we disempower ourselves. Now, you may not want to make that choice, but I want people to realize they have these choices. It's taking responsibility for yourself. We are not helpless victims. And so often we collude into the dysfunctional system that we are in. That's quite powerful uh, statement. I like it because when we say we cannot do something, we strip ourselves of the chance to do it. But it's more a sense that we don't know how to do it rather than we can't do it. And we miss the opportunity to learn how to do it the right way. But as Absolutely. you said, we are colluding. We are part of the problem because we've already decided, well, we don't want to learn this. We're never going to fix it because we've decided that we cannot fix it. Yes. Well, this has been great fun. Uh, yes. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. It was good to speak to you and Carol. I mean, you guys, I read the book. It's very, very well written. Wonderful job. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great evening. Okay. Thank you. And take care of yourself. Stay take well. Care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, 
and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.